Stay hungry, stay foolish. If you could make a change, any change you wanted, what would it be? Would it be something in your organization or your industry? Creating true change is never easy. Most startups don't survive. Most community groups never get beyond small local actions. Even when a spark catches fire and protesters swarm the streets, it often seems to fizzle out almost as fast as it started. The status quo is almost, by definition, well entrenched and never gives up without a fight. In this groundbreaking book, one of today's top innovation experts delivers a guide for driving transformational change. To truly change the world, or even just your little corner of it, you don't need a charismatic leader or a catchy slogan. What you need is a cascade. Small groups that are loosely connected, united by a common purpose. As individual entities, these groups may be, seem inconsequential. When they synchronize their collective behavior as networks, they become immensely powerful. Through the power of cascades, a company can be made anew, an industry disrupted, or even an entire society reshaped. Our guest today takes us through past and present movements and explains exactly why and how some succeed while others fail. We welcome best-selling author, keynote speaker, and innovation advisor, Greg Sattel. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. I love the progression of your books, Greg. The last one we covered on the show was Mapping Innovation. And it was like this framework of ideas and how to come up with the best ideas covering the history of innovation. And this book really spoke to me as a way to make sure those innovations take hold and cascade. Yeah, my first book, Mapping Innovation, described innovation as a process of discovery, engineering, and transformation. And in this book, I really focus on the transformation part. And I have to tell you, I found it absolutely fascinating how social and political networks, the ones that are successful, always end up with the same principles. They start off with very different contexts, philosophies, personalities. Often they fail in the beginning, but what they end up with always ends up looking very similar to the others, very similar principles. But what I found even more interesting is when I went into the corporate world, you look at massive turnarounds, historic turnarounds at places like Alcoa and IBM, efforts to bring innovation to an organization like lean manufacturing at Wyeth Laboratories or digital transformation, shifting to the cloud at a global giant-like experience. The same types of things come into play. And what I found really, really useful is when you look at the social movements, they are much, much better documented where the corporate type of transformations, we learn about them after it's over when some business school professor does a case study or when a consultant does a case study. And that's helpful to some extent, but I found that combining that with the historical record of some of these historic movements was just fascinating and incredibly useful. Absolutely useful. And for this show, that's all about change makers. It's inspiring because it speaks to the change maker and goes, none of these people started out as big, huge, boisterous personalities. They were normal people who had an idea or had a burning desire to change something. 
I would actually amend that. Often they didn't. Someone like Serja Popovich at Otpor, which I write a lot about, I think we'll discuss a bit more later. You know, he just wanted to be a rock star. He was a bassist in a rock band. Gandhi, he was a, a lawyer, and he was very much an Anglophile. He liked wearing his English suits, but he was incredibly shy. In fact, he was so shy, he couldn't even speak in court. Nelson Mandela was very much a black nationalist and really didn't want to have anything to do with the other racial groups in South Africa. What was important about all of them is how they evolved and how they learned. And that was one of the most inspiring things as I looked at this and studied this. We tend to think about these people as larger than life, but it wasn't any sort of innate ability they were born with. It's what they picked up along the way and how they saw a problem that needed to be solved. And they said, if not me, who? And they just rolled up their sleeves and got down to work. And in that way, it was not really any different than someone, I, I think we talked last time about Jim Allison, who came up with uh, cancer immunotherapy and just won the Nobel Prize this fall, or Charlie Bennett, who was one of the fathers of quantum information theory, which is now becoming quantum computing. But it's that same burning desire to solve a problem. Uh, and as I write in the book, to make a difference rather than just to make a point, that really proved to be the essential ingredient. Yeah, and that thing about making a difference and not just making a point equates pretty much to creating a revolution or creating a revolt. And you mentioned Otpor there. And it'd be great to start with the difference between how Otpor succeeded and Occupy failed. Yeah, I actually did a TED Talk on this. Again, what I thought was really interesting is Otpor's, or what became Otpor, their early efforts looked a lot like Occupy. In 1992, to protest the war in Bosnia, they basically occupied five major universities in Serbia. It was very inspiring, a big thing, and then classes ended and they all went home. <laughs> very, you know, very, very similar to, to what happened with Occupy. And then in 96, there was a, a bit more success. There was an election where the opposition party won a lot of seats. And Milosevic tried to steal the election, and there there was massive, massive protests, and they ended up winning, very similar to our situation in Ukraine in 2004 and five. But as soon as they got into power, they fell into infighting. Again, very similar to what happened in Ukraine. But in 1998, they came together. At first, I think there was six of them, and then they met in a coffee shop. And the next day, five more joined them. And they said, we're going to do it differently this time. And they said, you know, if we can really mobilize people and get them to the polls, we can win the election. And once we do that, Milosevic will try and steal it. And that will be our chance. And I thought that was so interesting that they didn't say we're going to win the election and that'll be the end. We're going to win the election and that's when it starts. And that's exactly what happened. Now, Occupy could never get beyond their own slogans. And this is interesting as well because Serja Popovich, one of the leaders of, uh, of Otpor, went to talk to the 
Occupy activists. And he was, he was brought in to, to do a training for them. And the first thing he asked them, he said, so what is it that you want to change? And they, they said, well, you know, the banks are greedy and the student loans are horrible. And he said, he said, no, no, no. Those are grievances. Those are things that you don't like. What do you want change to look like? If I could give you like a magic wand, like Harry Potter, you could change whatever you wanted. And, uh, uh, you know, what would that change look like? If you could change whatever, if you could make it however you want it. And they couldn't tell me. So they went round and round for hours. So I would say that's the first thing. I mean, if you can't say what you want change to look like, don't expect things to change. Another thing he told them, he said, why are you sleeping in a park? Don't you know bankers have air conditioning? What do they care if you want to sleep in a park? They're just going to wait you out. And that's exactly what happened. So I do think that a lot of people in Occupy, they wanted to make a point more than they wanted to make a difference. And I think a great example of that is when the, the civil rights leader, John Lewis, he asked to speak at an Occupy event in Atlanta. And they didn't let him. And there was various explanations. Some people thought it was racist. Uh, the person who sort of led the, the charge to prevent him from speaking said it was because he was part of the two-party system. Some others just said, well, he didn't know the rules. Whatever you want to call it, they missed the opportunity to make a valuable connection. And that, I guess, might have been the biggest mistake Occupy made is not understanding that you mobilize people to influence institutions. Occupy was mobilizing people for no specific purpose. In fact, they didn't want to have anything to do with institutions. And institutions are the only ones who really have the power to enact change. I mean, you can think back to Martin Luther King. He was a, a fantastic leader, but he didn't write a single piece of legislation. You know, he didn't decide a single court case. He had to inspire others to do that. And I think that simple concept is one that so often gets lost, that you need to mobilize people to influence institutions and the powers that be that can actually move change. And this is your key principle of it takes a network to defeat a network. And it'd be great segue actually for talking about Stanley McChrystal and his success in doing this for massive organizational change. So this was the special forces in Iraq. And he came in and he commanded probably the best military organization, you know, ever to exist. And his guys were the elite of the elite, and they were winning every single battle. But they were losing the war. And he could have said, oh, well, our guys are doing great. It's the politicians or something. But instead, he said, no, I have to change my organization. It's the links between our teams that's broken. So, you know, for instance, our commandos, they're going out, they're doing a great job, they're capturing this great intelligence. We've got these intelligence analysts who were super smart, understand the terrain, understand the culture, 
But when the commandos bring back valuable intelligence, it's often sitting in the closet for two weeks. And by the time the intelligence analysts get to it, it's worthless already. And the intelligence analysts, they'll, you know, identify an important target. But by the time it gets to the guys on the ground, you know, the terrorists are already gone. And he also noticed that, and this is what impressed me the most, he noticed that he was part of the problem. Because in the time that it took him to plan and make a decision, often by the time it got to the guys on the ground, it was no longer a good plan. And if he could push that decision-making down, even if their plans might not have been objectively as brilliant as his, because they were timely, they were already better. And this, is, I thought, was the most important thing that he said, because we all talk about pushing decision-making down. But he said, before you can push decision-making down, you have to instill a sense of shared purpose and shared consciousness. Because if those people on the ground, if they don't share your values, they're not going to do things the way you want them done. If they do share your values, then you can be confident in their actions. So it's not just about getting people to do what you want. They also have to want what you want. And I think that's the missing element in so many of these organizational efforts to push decision-making down. If you don't really instill those types of values in your organization, pushing decision-making down isn't going to make you more agile. It's just going to make you more chaotic. And I love what McChrystal did. You talked about him focusing on the links between teams because those links were normally reserved for people nearing pension or people who are put out to pasture. They weren't seen as essential roles, but he laser-focused on making those links ultra-strong with some of his best people. Right. Liaison positions were considered for substandard officers or guys nearing retirement. He got his best guys. And that wasn't easy to do. You know, you can imagine the commanders on some of his teams saying, look, I'm going to take your your best guy and I'm going to stick him in an embassy for six months. You know, that didn't go over so well. Also, he embedded commandos in intelligence teams and intelligence teams in into commando teams. And that really didn't go over so well. But what he understood, and this really comes out in the chapters on network science, that it only takes a few links to bring social distance within a network, whether that's an organization or an industry, crashing down. So while the individual teams might have slowed down a little bit, the organization itself sped up and rapidly accelerated. And that was key to, to its success. Oftentimes, we only see what's right in front of us. And if we're working in an intact team, we see that as slower. And we're like, oh, I have to put in this extra time for the organization. It's that change in habits, in organizational habits as well, that's really difficult for people to absorb. And, and we see this in the corporate world a lot. They have these global coordination positions or regional coordination positions. And you and usually those types of positions aren't given to top performers. Uh, so coordination kind of takes a back seat. Another thing that I think is really important is in so many organizations, you see the senior management say, oh, yeah, we're super connected. 
we are great at working with a team. You know, I work with all the other vice presidents in the other divisions and, and, and we've really got a great, great morale and we talk all the time. And so that may be true, but it's usually doesn't happen until that, uh, that top senior level. So the senior management becomes a bottleneck because anytime you need collaboration to happen across organizational borders, it pretty much has to go through the, the senior management because they're connected. So uh, one of the things that organizations can do to improve agility massively is to start thinking as soon as somebody enters your company, how do they get connected? And Often, uh, there is, you don't need to start any new expensive programs or have some kind of consultants come in or something like that. A lot of it is just sort of repurposing and reimagining the programs you have for connectivity. A great example is uh, Facebook's engineering bootcamp, where every new employee comes in, goes through this bootcamp. And that's not that much different from a lot of companies because a lot of companies, they have some kind of orientation program or onboarding program or training program. But with Facebook, they all go to the same place and work together for six weeks. And they work on real projects with people in, in Facebook. And what they found was that after the boot camp was over, those bonds lasted as those people went to different locations and different parts of the company. And that really helps their engineers stay connected because somebody who's even just been there for a couple of months, if they need some information from some far-flung part of the company, they don't have to go through their manager. They go through their buddy that they spent six weeks with. We had a similar program at our company and found similar results. Another example that I thought was just brilliant is at a bank, their call center. They noticed that there was huge variation between the different call center teams. And they, they brought in some researchers to find out what that was. And they found out about a third of the variation could be explained by informal conversations and contacts outside of meetings. So what they did is they said, well, you know what? The way it works now is when there's a break, whether it's a coffee break or a lunch break, you know, a certain amount of people from each team, they go at any given time. And the breaks are kind of staggered that way so that the, the rest of the team can keep serving customers. And they said, well, we, we don't really need to do that. What we can do is let the whole team go out at once and then the other teams can take up the slack and that way that team can take their break together and and talk and bond and whatever there was a 15 million dollar increase in productivity so i think just having that mindset that connectivity throughout your organization is really really important even in entry level positions even just that one realization can really make an impact there was one piece you talked about there, and it was regarding McChrystal. It absolutely reminded me of corporations where we need a strategy for digital transformation or we need a strategy for a new product. And it reminded me of the Jack Welch quote, if the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is nigh. But you say, McChrystal said, 
The world has outpaced us in the time it took us to move a play from creation to approval. The battlefield for which the plan had been devised would have changed. By the time it had been implemented, the plan, however ingenious in its initial design, was often irrelevant. And that absolutely nails the problem that is in so many organizations. They create this brilliant strategy, brilliant product, but by the time it's executed, the world has moved on. Or like in the case of Blockbuster, where you have a plan, you have a strategy, but key stakeholders aren't aligned. And that's what really brought Blockbuster's downfall. As I explain in the book, you know, everything that people today say that Blockbuster should have done, you know, invest in a digital platform, cut out with late fees, innovate their business model, invest in streaming. They did all of that stuff, but they weren't able to bring along the franchisees and the shareholders. And when the stock price fell, that attracted the corporate raider, Carl Icahn, and he got at loggerheads with the CEO. The CEO left. That strategy was abandoned. Three years later, Blockbuster was bankrupt. And I thought that was just so, so compelling because you go back and, and, and you look at the executive team at, at Blockbuster. And today, everybody says, oh, well, they weren't paying attention. They didn't understand. And you could see that they understood really well. And they put in a great strategy. They executed it very, very well. And by, you know, early, two, I think late 2006, early 2007, they were actually adding new subscribers faster than Netflix was. And when I talked to the former CEO, John Aniaco, what I found was so interesting because this was a guy who'd been an innovator his entire life. He told me, he said, whenever you want to do something different. There's always going to be critics and naysayers. And I just always learned how to push through that. And that's how he'd been successful throughout his career. And in fact, is still successful with his new business. But that one time, he wasn't able to bring the stakeholders along, and it all kind of fell apart. I'd love to delve into this a little bit more. Antioco had a stellar career in turnarounds, he was a brilliant manager. He'd even, as you say, had put a strategy in place. But it was this thing of trying to change the minds of the network. This is where he falls down. And this is the kind of case study, really, that you use it for, is building the network throughout the organization, getting people like the franchisees on board, rallying the troops with a common purpose. These things were the missing ingredients. It wasn't like he sat there and said, uh, oh, I'm going to piss off the franchisees, right? And and it wasn't like he's, he said, oh, we don't care about the shareholders. He was a doer, and he'd always been successful, and he was always able to show results, and people saw he was right in the end. It was just that he didn't make it a priority. He didn't even see it coming. In fact, when I was talking to him, at first he was resistant and a little bit defensive, and as we were talking... He was like, no, it wasn't really that. It wasn't really that. And, and he sort of said, well, yeah, then when the stock fell, and that's what brought Carl Icahn in. And one of the things that really impressed me is all these years later, when so much has been written about it, what was apparent to me is as we were talking, he's still trying to think through it and learn from it, which really, really impressed me. His successor, Jim Keyes, uh, was a little bit... Um, to be honest, I, I, 
I didn't really understand what he was talking about. Uh, but even then, <laughs> even then, they weren't a band. He saw himself as jumping to streaming. And for some reason, he thought that the best way to do that was to build up a larger retail network and sell downloads rather than uh, the subscription model through the DVDs. I don't get it, but uh, it wasn't that he didn't see digital coming or something like that. He had some ideas of, of a way to do it differently, which quite frankly didn't don't make a whole lot of sense to me. You do a great job in the book of playing this out and, and using it as one of the kind of jigsaw pieces to explain the, the six principles you talk about in the book. But another great one, and in the wake of the Amazon in the U US picking where their, their new base is going to be, I thought this one was really poignant, was the difference between Boston in the past and Silicon Valley as it progressed. Yeah, I actually just recently published a couple of articles about this. Um, what was so interesting was it was how they saw themselves. So a, a lot of people don't remember this, but back in the, in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, Boston was really the center of technology. And the companies there, uh, like DEC and Data General, you know, they were seen as innovators. Uh, they invented the mini computer revolution. The CEO of DEC, I think he was on Fortune as, as like the, the, the greatest entrepreneur, the greatest CEO of the decade or something like that. But the, the, those Boston firms, they saw themselves as individual firms and they worked for their own proprietary advantage. Their strategy was vertical integration and they wanted to control their resources and build their products as efficiently as possible. So for instance, that meant there was very little job switching. If you, you know, left uh, a company like DEC or Data General, uh, Wang or one of the others, you were considered an outcast. You know, don't, don't, don't even look back. Where at in Silicon Valley, they really saw themselves as an ecosystem. So, they would uh, collaborate. If somebody left the company to start their own company, they were seen as a potential customer or partner. They used to attend each other's lectures and attend lectures together at Stanford University and UC Berkeley. So they saw themselves as certainly competitors and they definitely wanted to make a profit. I mean, everybody in Silicon Valley was there to get rich, but they saw themselves as an ecosystem. And because they saw themselves as an ecosystem, they built up those connections between them, and that's what allowed them to adapt when the technology industry really started changing in the 80s and 90s. And that's why today Silicon Valley is considered the center of technology, and Boston is certainly not. And the other thing that I found uh, really interesting is when I uh, I talked to Annalise Saxenian. Who's, who's really written all the, the books about this is she told me, you know, nowhere except none of the other technology hubs, you know, around the world, whether it's, you know, Taipei or Bangalore or Tel Aviv, um, or in some, in some ways, Dublin, uh, none of them really just appeared de novo. They all arose from some connection to Silicon Valley. She said, Silicon Valley 
arose because of a very, very strange confluence of, of forces there, um, which I describe in the book. But she said, you know, if you look at a place like Bangalore, Tel Aviv, or Taipei, what happened was, you know, because Silicon Valley was such an open place, people would come there and they'd work for 10 years and then they'd go back home and they'd immediately start a business working with Silicon Valley, you know, as a supplier or a customer or a distributor or whatever it was. And eventually they would specialize and become a, you know, a world champion in specific areas or specific technologies. Um, and, and what's interesting is that connection to Silicon Valley actually strengthens the centrality of Silicon Valley. And if you look at the sort of failed tech hubs, places like Skolkovo and Moscow, Moscow and, and others, so many, so many people say, we want to build the new, new Sil Silicon Valley. And they, what they miss is the most Im important ingredient, which is the connection to Silicon Valley. And I think that's true in a lot of industries where if you want to build a new hub, you start with connections uh, and, and that's how you build a regional economy. Let's zoom in on connections now because I loved the way you start this chapter about connections and networks and you talked about the amazing phenomenon of coupled oscillation. Coupled oscillation is things like the pacemaker cells in our hearts. They need to synchronize about once a second every minute of every hour of our lives. And if they fail to do that even once, uh, we can be in, in a lot of trouble, right? There's other examples of coupled oscillation that are really amazing. Certain species of fireflies can synchronize their blinking. So entire forests kind of have the synchronized blinking effect. And scientists had known about this for centuries. But it turned out a graduate student at Cornell just sort of pieced it all together and figured it all out. And that became the Watts-Strogatz model. And uh, it's it actually just recently turned 20 years old. And it's one of the most highly cited uh, scientific papers ever. And speaking of Watts, you mentioned the Watts beta model as well. I thought this one was an interesting one to share with the audience. Right. So what Watts found was uh, that it takes just a, a very small amount of random connections to bring social distance crashing down. And I, I thought that was a really important insight because we tend to think about networking like everybody's got to be connected. It's not. You just need to encourage a little bit of mixing. Uh, and I think, uh, I, th I think the figure is it takes only five random links in an ordered system to have the social distance in the network. I think that all too often when we talk about connecting people and networking and organization, we do stuff like, you know, we have a little beer bash or something like that, or have a, a mixer. And the evidence shows those things are actually not that effective at all. What is really effective is widening and strengthening working relationships within your organization. So uh, rather than you know, having a beer bash, thinking about how you can get people uh, 
especially junior employees, to work together on a on a project. And and again, I think things like the Facebook engineering camp, uh, boot camp, where you're getting uh, you're getting entry level employees to spend six weeks together. Those those are the sorts of bonds that endure, and uh, and in many cases, uh, I know because we've we had a, a similar thing both at the company I ran in Ukraine and the company I worked with in New York uh, twenty five years ago. That often um, the best relationships in the organization, you know, ten, twenty, thirty years later are the ones made during that initial training period if you're bringing people from disparate parts of the organization together. So, Greg, let's talk about the network now. So the nodes in a network are in place. We have that, like the Facebook model you mentioned. But then you have to think about how do you bring them together? And this is the key part. And you you say throughout the book, for transformational change to happen, you need small groups loosely connected, united by a common purpose. And it's that last piece, the common purpose, that becomes really important when you have this network. Right. And we've heard so much in recent years about, you know, how these networks are leaderless. There's uh, things like holacracy, the Arab Spring. That's the one thing they always say is that in this new era, you know, where we have digital technology to connect us. Really, leaders aren't as important. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Because things happen so fast, you need leaders to give that sense of shared purpose. Uh, Back to McChrystal's point that before you can push decision-making down through an organization, you need to build shared purpose and shared consciousness. That, I think, is true in any organization. And when you have this ability for people to connect and for uh, cascades to change things very, very quickly, and when I mean quickly, uh, just to blow up on that point, you know, if you went to Serbia in 1999, you would say, well, Milosevic, he's going to be, you know, in power for life. You know, nobody, there is no organized opposition. And even if you pointed out, uh, oh, well, there's this Otpur and, 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 and they're, you know, organizing against him. They were only maybe a couple hundred people in 1999. And then a year later, Otpur is up to 70,000 members. Milosevic is out of power. And a few years later than that, he's dead in his jail cell in, in The Hague. So that's how quickly things can change. So if you don't have a leader really bringing that shared purpose and shared consciousness to the table, you just end up with absolute anarchy and and chaos. And you just sit there not knowing where events are taking you. And that's why it's so important for leaders today to see as their number one job as A, giving that purpose, and B, Thinking of themselves as kind of a gardener and helping to grow and shape those connections within their organization. I love here, Greg, you talk about this idea of the Q metric and you talk about the research on Broadway musicals because this really brings it to life. Yeah, so so the Q metric, just let me track back a little bit and just talk a little bit about the concept of small world networks and, and what Watts and Strogatz discovered. because. 
we've known about networks for a long, 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 long time. But one of the assumptions about networks is that you can have these tight clusters of really strong relationships, or you can have this wide reach and vast connectivity through the network, you know, six degrees of separation, for example. And what Watts and Strogatz discovered is not only is it possible to have both short path lengths, meaning not a whole lot of degrees of separation, and tight clustering, what they found is that networks actually tend to go that way. And that basically is the foundation that modern network theory is built on. So some other network scientists following on their work, they came up with this idea of a Q metric for people who are interested in technical details. It's that clustering coefficient over the path links normalized for a random network, but that's probably not important. Anyway, this Q metric, Duncan Watts calls it the small worldliness of a network. And when some scientists, they wanted to see what made a play a hit on Broadway, what separated the hits from the flops, both in terms of financial success and critical acclaim. They looked at 50 years of Broadway plays, and what they found was the strongest determinant wasn't things like the marketing budget or the production budget or the track record of the director, but it was the structure of the relationships among the cast and crew. So if people among the cast and crew, they had never worked together before, results tended to be pretty poor because they had difficulty coordinating. However, if almost everybody on the cast and crew had worked together before, results were similarly bad. So the best performers had that mix of strong relationships and new blood so that they were able to coordinate, but also there were open nodes in the network to let new ideas and creativity in. And I think that is a great rule of thumb to follow for any organization, that in your teams, you want to have some cohesiveness and people who have had those years of experience working together, but you also want to constantly have some mixing as well. That's great. It's, it's such a great study. And Greg, we're only going to have time for one more part, which is, uh, I love this, and I love how you phrase it, the genome of values. Right. So, you know, we think of values as something that is static, um, you know, and somebody who has integrity, we see, you know, that guy has integrity, he never changes. Where we need to think of values as rules for adaptation. And I use a genome as sort of a metaphor because our genome, our DNA, doesn't actually have that much information in it. There is uh, only about as much information in our DNA as there is in, let's say, a DVD with a full-length movie in it, and only an SD, uh, not even enough for HD. So we're not talking about an enormous amount of information, but what our genes give us is these rules for adaptation, first in the womb and then with our environment. And those rules for adaptation are able to lead us to do quite a bit, right? Live our entire lives. And I think in terms of organizations, 
we need to think about values in the same way. I think the person who really explained this best is a guy named Irving Velovsky Berger, who was one of Lou Gerstner's chief lieutenants during the IBM turnaround in the 1990s. And he said, when Lou came in, he reminded us of our values that we'd lost sight of. He said certain things like people in IBM always dress conservatively in a suit and tie, but that wasn't a value. That was the manifestation of a value because early on in our company, most of our customers were banks and the value was to be close to customers. So we dressed like bankers. But what Lou reminded us of, of was that was the value. Uh, so if our customers wear khakis, it was fine for IBMers to start wearing khakis. Uh, another example he gave, he said, you know, IBM's always been a competitive company, but we began to compete with our, with our customers. That wasn't the value. The value was to compete in the marketplace. So Lou, he said he got rid of some very, very senior people who were known for infighting. And I think one of the most important points about values that people lose sight of is it's only a value if it's going to cost you something. So many times when I do my workshops and the subject of values comes up, I ask them, what are your values? And they say things like, oh, we value the customer, we value excellence. And then I ask them, what do those values cost you? And there's sort of silence. But if you're not willing to pay a cost, it's not much of a value, is it? How does that cost manifest, Greg? So, for instance, where Lou Gerstner said, we value competition in the marketplace, not within our organization, he got rid of some top executives who were known for infighting. That was a cost. If you're going to say, this is something we value, we value integrity, uh, and then a top performer, you find that he's cheating a customer, and you say, oh, well, you know, he's a top performer. Well, that's not a value then. When you say we value a customer and then you know you're doing something to cheat customers that's not a value and i think one of the most important things is values give you constraints so if you look at nelson mandela when people would ask him he would be accused of being a communist and an anarchist and all these things but he said if you want to know what i believe you don't need to guess because it was all written down in the Freedom Charter that we wrote in 1955. And in that Freedom Charter, it said equal rights for all Africans. Now, when he came to power, that value became a constraint, right? Because it meant that he couldn't oppress his former jailers. And because he lived up to that value, we know Nelson Mandela as a hero today, rather than just some other African warlord. That's another key part you say is, like Gandhi said, for example, you need to be the change you want to see in the world. So you have to actually live your values. You have to walk the talk. Absolutely. So Greg, I absolutely enjoyed speaking to you as always and love the book. Looking forward to the next one because you've got so much knowledge in there that is so valuable to the world. Where can people reach out to find you, your website, find you for keynotes, etc.? The best place to reach me is on my website, gregsatel.com. 
and also my blog, digitaltonto.com. Thank you so much for having me, Aiden. It's always a great conversation. Best-selling author, keynote speaker, an innovation advisor, and author of Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change, Greg Sattel. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.